quits, I'll keep on working on this I'm working hard on this It's plain obvious it is Oh, oh, Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Hi, Lou. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. Uh, We hope you are travelling okay wherever you happen to be in the world. Louise and I are still just over a mile apart, but together. Yes. (laughs) In our respective uh, studies. We've both got a cup of tea and a snack, and it's hopefully not going to be too long before we can record together again. Yes. Well, I'm hoping. Yeah, exactly. So I'm looking forward to our conversation today, Lou. It's going to be all about books with girls as the main protagonists yep and the two i read were really good so it'll be really fun to discuss both of them so did you want to kick off first yes i will i have read the girl with the louding voice which is by author abby dare published by scepter books which is an imprint of hodder and Storton, i think and it was released earlier this year and this is a really moving book set in nigeria I have to admit, I have cheated a little bit. I have a Nigerian friend and he has very kindly given me some pronunciation lessons. How (laughs) handy. Because every now and then I'd like to go that extra mile to get it right. (laughs) The things we do for our podcast, Lou. I know the things we do, but I really, you know, I'm so fond of the girl in this book that I wanted to make sure that I got her name right. And I still may not do it well, but anyway, I've, I've certainly had some assistance. So it's the story of a teenage girl. She's 14 years old. Years old. Her name is Aduni, and Aduni is growing up poor in a Yoruba village in southwestern Nigeria in the present day. And she has dreams of a better life and of one day becoming a teacher. And the seeds of this desire and her ambition to improve her life and those around her were planted by her mother, who valued education. The book is in her voice, it's entirely from her perspective. So her family have not always been quite as poor as they are when the book opens. Her mother worked very hard to keep Aduni in school and to feed the family. She has two brothers. But as the story starts, we learn that Aduni's mother has died and her grief-stricken father summons her to see him and announces that they cannot pay their rent. And so contrary to a promise that he made to his dead wife uh, and a promise that Aduni clung to, he is going to sell her as a bride. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And she's to be sold to an older man in the village, a Mr. Marufu. And Marufu will give her father money for the rent and some goats and some other things. I mean, God, what price a child. And Aduni is devastated. She's devastated to be leaving her 11-year-old brother and she's devastated to not be able to stay at school and fulfil her mother's wishes. So she runs to see her best friend and, and she's surprised by her reaction. Her best friend is from the same village and she's a more traditional girl and she thinks Aduni is lucky to be marrying a richer man who can provide for her and her family. 
And she thinks that Oduni should thank God for the circumstances. Oh, dear. And I think in that very simple encounter, the author lays bare the contrast and tensions of sort of older and more progressive views. So Mr. Marufu is a taxi driver in the village, but with relative wealth compared to others. And he already has two wives. The second wife welcomes Aduni, but the first wife, who already has a daughter who is Aduni's age, is very angry and resentful of the new bride's presence. And we learn that the reason why he's taken a third wife is because his first two wives have failed to bear him sons. Oh, wow. So because the book is written from her perspective, there's a real immediacy to her predicament. So you really sense the burden that she is bearing, you know, in his household and her fear each day, uh, what might be around the corner. But you learn also that she has this inner strength and she's quite brave and dogged and sometimes naively so. But then something terrible happens in this household. Is she still 14 by the time she marries him? Yes, yeah, she is. She is. She is. I think it's not unusually so. I won't give away what happens in the household, but she flees from the village knowing that they will be hot on her tail trying to find her. But she finds herself sold again, and this time as a domestic maid to a wealthy couple, Big Madame and Big Daddy. Oh, and they, li- <laughs> they live in the city in Lagos, the capital of Nigeria. And she's told that she is replacing a maid, Rebecca, who has disappeared. And nobody can tell her where Rebecca is and what has happened to her. But Aduni wants to find out the truth. So this is her story, but really it's a story for all the housemaids in Nigeria. The author, Abby Dare, is Nigerian. She grew up in Lagos in a middle-class family that also employed young maids. She now lives in London. And I read she was having a a chance conversation with her daughter. One of her daughters was eight at the time and and was complaining that she had to empty the dishwasher. Mm. So strangely, that's... uh, That's so familiar. familiar. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So Dare mentioned to her daughter that there were girls in Nigeria that were employed as maids as young as eight years old. And this set Dare on a path to research the housemaids. And so she learned a great deal about their mistreatment and the abuse and violence that they suffered and the fact that many of them were working for no money at all. So she's given Aduni this very strong inner dialogue. She's very spirited. But despite this huge sort of change in her life at age 14, she never loses this secret drive for an education and nothing that she endures extinguishes this desire. So it's very hopeful. It's also lovely because it ties back to her mother. Absolutely, yeah. That tie is so strong and lasting. And her mother stays with her. And and really education is the other social issue that the book is highlighting, you know, how transformative it can be and the opportunities that education provides, particularly for girls as a first step in Nigeria. And there's a lovely part of the book there are excerpts and facts and quotations from a book scattered throughout the book and at the beginning of each chapter. And they are from a book that Aduni finds in the big Madame's house library. And it's the Book of Nigerian Facts 
From Past to Present, 5th edition, 2014. It's actually a fictional book, but the facts in it are accurate. So they sort of serve to educate us about Nigeria as readers. That's a clever way of doing it, isn't it? Very clever, yeah. But Aduni also continues to learn as well. So it's a very clever little device. And look, without wanting to detract from obviously the major social issues in the book, I think what I enjoyed most were some of the relationships that she had. And they're the relationships that sustain her through the adversity. So she has a lovely, tender relationship with Morufu's second wife. That's beautifully written. And later when she's working at Big Madame's house, her relationship with the chef, who's very protective of her. It's a very sort of warm note in the book. So just finally, I should mention, Aduni speaks with a sort of broken English. And this is a deliberate choice by the author. Apparently, many Nigerians, regardless of their wealth and status, speak pidgin English, but she didn't want to write Aduni's voice in pidgin. So she's sort of written this unique, broken voice of a girl who's, you know, as if she's struggling to learn English. But it's completely understandable and readable, and it just takes a couple of pages to get used to. So look, that's The Louding Voice by Abby Dare. Definitely worth reading. That sounds really good, Lou. I'm keen to find out what happens to her. So I'll have to get hold of that book next time I see you. Yes. So we've both read the next book and it's one that you chose and it's so good. Yes, Allegra in Three Parts by Suzanne Daniel. So I'm going to jump in here. We, yeah, As you said, we've both been really looking forward to reading this and this was sent to us by the publisher, Pan Macmillan. So thank you very much for that. I'm just going to mention a bit of housekeeping first. Allegra in Three Parts is the Australian title and it was released last year in Australia and New Zealand under that name and it was released as adult fiction. Oh. Yeah, and it then won a few months ago the Indie Book Debut Fiction Award. And I think that's a great award because it's voted by independent booksellers and we know how much we rate independent booksellers. So I'd be pretty chuffed if I won, won that award. Absolutely. And then in March this year, the book was released in the US and Canada under a different name, A Girl in Three Parts. And it was released as young adult fiction, which I think in America, do they call middle years fiction? I'm not sure. I think middle grade, middle grade, I think he's a bit younger even. I think that's sort of up to 14, whereas I think young adult is a bit older. Yes, I understand. And I don't know whether this was an arbitrary decision because the narrator is an 11-year-old girl, but we might have a chat about that in a mm. minute, Virginia, because I know we have an opinion about that. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, sadly, for this book, going into the US bookshops, the coronavirus hit so hopefully we can shine a little bit of a light on it. It's such a special gem of a book and I've had almost a visceral response to it. Me too. It's so vivid and layered and heartwarming story and so many other ad adjectives <laughs> yeah. and I haven't even begun to describe the writing which we are going to get to. I just completely loved it, yeah. It just stays with you, doesn't it? It really does. So it's the 1970s and Allegra lives with her mother, Matilde, at number 23. Uh, Matilde is a Hungarian emigre. She's a Holocaust survivor. We find that out very early in the book. And she has a telltale tattoo on her wrist. And Matilda maintains this sort of no-nonsense, clean, orderly home with a practical vegetable-packed garden. 
She cleans and sews and cooks, and she makes sure Allegra practices her piano and her spelling. And she has clean pressed clothes and shiny shoes for Allegra every day. So she's got these very high standards. She's very diligent in her mothering. She is. Or grandmothering of Allegra. She's sort of very serious, really, isn't she? And inward facing. That's how she shows her love. It is, absolutely. All the acts of service to her grandchild, yeah. Yeah, I think her life's purpose is to provide for Allegra. So Allegra can thrive, but also maybe so Allegra can fulfil some ambitions she has for her, doesn't she? Yeah. And Allegra's father, Rick, also lives at number 23 in a flat above the garage. And he seems initially to be less present in Allegra's life day to day. And he's largely ignored by Matilda, isn't he? Yeah. And that's a fact that doesn't go unnoticed by Allegra. And then the third part of Allegra's life, in addition to Matilda and Rick, is her other grandmother, Joy, who lives next door at number 25. And Virginia, Joy could not be more of a contrast to Matilda, could she? That's right. Joy is the complete opposite. She's a fabulous grandmother. She sort of wafts in and out. She's always very loving, very positive and affectionate, but she's a bit kooky. Yes. Uh, You know, (laughs) she stores her tears in glass bottles (gasps) and and labels the events that prompted those tears. And then she regularly dusts them. (laughs) (laughs) And she's got her pet tortoise called Simone de Beauvoir and her garden doesn't have anything in it that you can eat. It's been created (laughs) to enlighten the senses. Yes. And she's always surrounded by her girlfriends from the Liberty Club and they're a very eccentric group of women who are wanting change for women in society and they're reading Germaine Greer's The Female Eunuch and taking in battered wives, which is what they were called back Mm. then because this is set in about 1975 Australia and that's Mm. what they were called and their children. And these women all call themselves the sisterhood. So, yes, I I loved Joy. I thought she was a gorgeous counterpoint to Matilde. Yeah, absolutely. And in so many ways they're both sort of feminists, aren't they, really? Because despite, as you said, Joy's kooky exterior and she seems a bit flighty and she stays up drinking late at night with her friends. Her group of friends are looking after women who are suffering domestic violence. Yeah. And then you have Matilda, on the other hand, who is doing everything by herself yes. to provide for Allegra. So, yeah, both of them very determined women in that respect. Yes, very strong role models for her. And Matilda is just not even really that interested in the theory of feminism she when she's asked about it by her granddaughter she says I don't have time for that sort of rubbish I'm too busy cooking and cleaning and earning money for the piano lessons and the school fees so there's that contrast in the reality that they're living yeah absolutely so for Allegra these three people in her life so don't appear to be particularly connected but of course what they have in common is their love for Allegra and also their apparent intense dislike of each other yeah. Although Rick, of course, I can't say that he intensely dislikes anybody. Allegra is 11 years old. She's turning 12. So she's at an age where she's sort of acutely aware and increasingly concerned by the distance between these two women she loves and the father who doesn't quite fit in. And for me, it was what they don't say. It's the negative space between their actions and conversations that she begins to notice. And that's what begins to build up, I think. 
And consequently, she says, I feel split in three. Yes. It's that old principle of where there's a vacuum, you have to go and fill it. So there is a vacuum. There's some gaps. There's gaps in her knowledge. There's gaps in their relationships. And she starts to query those gaps, wonder about them, ask questions, make wrong assumptions. Yes. All sorts of things to fill that vacuum. Yeah, as children do. It's it's yeah. just so on point, isn't it, really? She's so perfectly captured yeah. the position that Allegra finds herself in. So Allegra is, uh, I should say, it's not really a spoiler because the reader will imagine. We find out quite early in the book that her mother has died. Yes, it's not a spoiler. So Allegra is in six class at a local convent school and her classroom teacher is a sister Josepha who I just loved I thought she was this marvelous robust character she, you know she the way she deals with the <laughs> naughty children in the classroom is just brilliant and actually quite a refreshing character of a of a nun yes. you know given current times I think she was rather cute and she kept losing the keys to the gym so they couldn't go and do phys ed and she had a lot of charm, didn't she? Yeah, and she's got her eyes on all the naughty boys in the classroom <laughs> yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and the the it girl who's very yeah. mean. So she knows exactly what's going on. I love that about yes, her. Yes, I, I did too. So Sister Josepha announces to the class that they will soon be taking their sacrament of confirmation and each child in the class needs to pick an adult of the same gender as a confirmation sponsor. So this person has to be somebody who cares deeply for your soul, somebody who will help you grow to be like them in character, faith and fortitude. Nurture you into adulthood. <laughs> yes, somebody full of grace. And, of course, when you read this, you immediately feel mm. what Allegra feels, don't I you? Know. You know, who is she going to choose? Yeah, yeah. And I don't want to give too much more away about the story. No. I although think, I, although think I honestly think we could do a whole episode on this. I could talk about this book for weeks. I loved it so much. But, look, let's have a little bit of a chat about the writing. Yes. What do you think, Virginia, about how clever Suzanne Daniel has been to maintain the perspective of Allegra at 11 and we learn with her and yet she still manages to allow us to be part of this sort of nuanced emotions of the adults? It's very clever the way she's done it. She's captured that childlike observation with the amount of understanding that an 11 going on 12-year-old has, but she drip feeds the pieces of information that are presented to Allegra over time or that she gleans by watching everyone. And so the reader also gradually learns and pieces things together and we get a full picture of what's gone on in the past and there are some flags which w the reader gets which Allegra maybe doesn't get quite as much so when she says to Rick was my mother sick before she died and Rick says mm, you could say that and yes the reader thinks oh there's obviously a real story here that this is going to be complicated but it just it's a bit confusing to Allegra so there's lots of clever things like that and I loved it and she still doesn't give the game away to us. I mean, you know, Joy has the bottles that are labelled devastation, which she does never explain what those bottles are about. And, and we make a guess, but we actually don't know. No. You know, the reveal is also kept special for us as well. Yeah, absolutely. I really just loved her writing. I, I wanted to get all the accolades and all the prizes and all the recognition because I... I feel like it's just such a special book. 
I agree. It has a sort of almost a lyrical rhythm to it. And I, I wonder also with, with Allegra is, for me, this sort of idea of the 1970s was such a strong resonance. And it wasn't simply just mentioning, you know, Helen Reddy or... Yes, I am woman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm singing that song. And, and you know, the, the was it the bluegrass eau de toilette at the Mother's Day stall and these all little signposts. There's just something about the way she describes the minutiae of the classroom and the minutiae of the suburbs it has such a strong suburban ordinary feel in many respects but there's just this warmth to it isn't there yes she's obviously got an incredibly good memory so she's really captured 1974 75 australia and sydney so perfectly and so for me this book it was very much of the 70s with the Cuisinier rods and they got Roneo'd papers in class because there were no photocopiers back yes. then and you know, it's obviously no mobile phones or computers and things. It also had a timelessness to it as well, which I think is perhaps through the relationships because those issues are timeless. Absolutely. So it's quite a clever balancing act where there's this gorgeous depiction of life in the 70s for an Australian child and you know, going down to the local milk bar and passing notes and all that sort of thing. And yet the interactions between Allegra and the three main adults in her life, I think she really nails it through the dialogue. That's her strength. It's not too complicated, but it tells you everything you need to know. I absolutely agree. And the dialogue shapes the characters so acutely, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think she did have a lot of sensational extra characters oh that were, my goodness were equally as as vivid and rich weren't they who was your favorite I think just from a bittersweet I mean the, he's not necessarily as vivid but I really really loved Rick I yeah. loved the father I loved the role where he sort of came to be really that person in the middle as well perhaps increasingly she was going to him for answers yes in a way that she didn't feel she could with her grandmother's so she had almost that pull to him. Yes. And obviously an ease that as she was, I suppose, growing older and as she was learning more, she was more comfortable to perhaps ask him things. And he stepped up, didn't he? He did. And so he, he's quite blurred at the beginning of the book. And then as Allegra, he becomes into sharper relief, doesn't he? So at first I thought he was going to be quite an absent father you discover he's a surfy and then but he really steps up and meets the challenges of parenting this young girl I loved his character but she portrayed him in such a sympathetic way yeah no she did and I think you know ultimately his discussion with Allegra of when her mother died how they all found themselves in particular roles and why they remained in those roles was... And they were stuck, yeah. It was exquisitely written, absolutely exquisitely written, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the central issue in this book is of a child being pulled in different directions by adults who can only see things from their point of view and then there's that pressure of being caught up in that and it, when it all just gets too much. And it's very common in divorce and that's such a common thing now. So I really loved the way Suzanne Daniel 
portrayed that issue of being pulled in different directions by adults who are not speaking to each other, who don't respect each other or who are angry with each other or whatever it might be. But this is a more original way of doing it. It's not a divorce and it's a completely original dynamic and story. But the central principle of a child being pulled in all those different directions is still holds true and I love that. Yes. Also, without there being very little fault at play on the part of people? Not a lot of blaming and not a lot of nastiness. It was it was really well done. It wasn't bitter, but she still felt the walls that there were between all the adults. Yes. One thing I really did want to say, Lou, was that this book reminds me, it's quite reminiscent to me in style and quality of Boy Swallows Universe by Trent Dalton. Yes. And I really wanted to get as much recognition as Boy Swallows Universe because it's got that enormous amount of heart in the story. There's so much heart at the bottom of it. And it's that tale of growing up in a family with tragedy and secrets, but with a lot of love and care as well. Mm. And there's a bunch of kooky and eccentric relatives. And there's there's that touch of magic. I mean, they're not remotely similar books, but there are just some qualities that made Boy Swallows Universe really special. And I think this has many of those qualities, including really good writing. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. It really does have that echo about it. And look, Allegra finds solace and refuge in relationships with different people. You know, her encounters with Whiskey Wendy, her encounters with her friend at school, her teacher. It's a very similar sort of idea that children who are facing a degree of trauma can find that solace with people around them. Yes. And those people become their whole world, don't they? So there's sort of there's that cute Lucinda Lister over the road who's a few years older and goes to the same school and she's got a dragster bike yes, and denim hot pants and over-the-knee socks. With the ribbons, the ribbons yes. on the bike. And she's got a blonde ponytail and green eyes. And then that friend, I loved this one, Annabelle Renshaw, yes. who was the wealthy girl whose father was a barrister and the mother was cooking the di- – oh, I, I won't go into all of that, but I, I just absolutely loved the way she captured all those people that formed Allegra's world and helped her sort of piece everything together. It's interesting, isn't it, because Trent Dalton, his characters were also sort of quite suburban characters as well. Yeah, that's true, yeah. And you literally – Allegra walks out of her door in the same way that his central character did as well. So, And they're all there. And that yet they write these very beautiful, it's very beautiful writing and they write these incredible characters so well. I wouldn't have thought, I mean, having grown up in suburban Australia, I wouldn't have thought that you could make it so good. Yes. But both of them have achieved that. It's really inspiring. So that's Allegra in three parts in Australia and a girl in three parts in Canada and the US. So we absolutely recommend you get hold of it because it's fantastic. Actually, I am interested, though, why the American publisher or the publisher decided to release it as a young adult fiction book in the US. Yes, I'm, I'm interested too. I think publishers make interesting decisions that I don't always yeah. understand or agree with, to be honest. Yeah. I, I don't think they should change the name of books because 
we're a global community and it just makes it confusing for people when publishers do that, but that's just my little pet peeve. In relation to the categorisation, I wonder if it's a cultural thing. I think maybe there's a bigger market in America of there's the big market of middle grade fiction and a big market of young adult fiction and maybe being a much smaller population we have a, a much smaller market. Maybe we keep our categories a bit broader. Yeah, no, that's interesting. It may very well be a financial decision. I just thought it was way more sophisticated and nuanced and clever. I just think adults should read this book. I think it's just marvellous. Absolutely. I think Australian adults would adore this book. Adults, I mean, this this character is born in late 1962 and I think there is a whole market of Australian adults who would find this wonderful to read. I agree. And look back on their own childhood, even if they didn't have any of those experiences that Allegra had, there's just so much richness in there that you can look at and identify and remember. And it's very warm. So I think there's a huge market for it. Maybe that's why the Australian people said this will appeal to Australian adults. Yes, but perhaps not resonate as much for adults in other countries. Yeah, look, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. Okay. So my book that I read on the topic of girls is a book called The Girl Who Drank the Moon. I'm holding up the cover for you, Lou, because it's just oh, that's the most beautiful, isn't exquisite it? cover. Are they bats or birds? They're paper birds and they are ah. a very significant part of the story. So this was published in 2016 and it won the Newbery Medal in 2017 and that tells you that it's going to be really good. The Newbery Medal, it's actually called the John Newbery Medal and it's given by a subgroup of the American Library Association and John Newbery was an 18th century British bookseller it's a highly prestigious prize and it's for the most distinguished contribution to American children's literature. And there is an actual bronze medal that they receive and there are also uh, Newbery honours given in subcategories. And then all the books get stamped with that beautiful gold medallion on the cover, So, which is fantastic if you're in a bookshop and you're mm. trying to find a, a book for a, a child and you want a good one, you know you're going to get a good one if it's got that middle on the front. This novel's probably pitched at about 10-year-olds, I would say, but once again, perfectly suitable for adults because it's got lots of layers and nuance and complexity and messages. It's beautifully written. It's not the sort of thing I usually read at all, but I really do want to read more books like this because they're perfect for the current moment that we're living through. So the story is that every year in a mystical, enchanted land, there is an area called the Protectorate and there's a horrible group of male elders in the community and they sacrifice a baby every year at the same time of year by leaving it in the woods. And the story has been circulated that an evil witch demands this sacrifice and they do this sacrificing in order to keep control in the community. But what really happens is that every year a kind old witch named Zan shows up and quickly rescues the baby from the forest. 
and finds a lovely home for it. So it's not a grim story as you might think when you first read it. And I'm not giving anything away. That's very, very early on in the story and it's sort of integral to the story. So the year that this story opens, the kind which Zan rescues the baby and she accidentally gives the baby moonlight to drink and that makes that baby magic and they call the baby Luna and the witch decides to raise Luna herself rather than finding another family for her. And meanwhile, Luna's mother back in the protectorate is beside herself at losing her child and she's gone quite mad. And Zan manages to cocoon Luna's magic until she's 13 years of age because she wants to save her from doing magical things that she doesn't understand and that could be dangerous. So the story is sort of about Luna approaching her teens and learning how to manage the magic powers that she's accidentally been given. And it's quite a rich, exciting story. There's also there's a tiny dragon, there's a wise monster who lives in a bog, there's a rumbling volcano, there's a young guy who failed at being an elder in the protectorate, and all these characters eventually come together in the most beautiful way with a lovely message not hammered at you it's a very subtle there's a few subtle messages and I found it completely gorgeous I loved it how lovely it's funny as I'm sitting here listening to you talk about it on the face of it it's a book for the young and yet you know like all fairy tales there's such adult themes and the messages so interesting how really you know we've always assumed that they're children's books but exactly this one is this message that there's always enough love in your heart there's an endless amount of love there's not a finite amount of love that we all have in our hearts it's just so beautifully written I'd love to read more she has written some other books so I'm going to search those out because it's gorgeous. So that's The Girl Who Drank the Moon by Kelly Barnhill. Mm. I will also mention, Lou, just while we're on the subject of girls, because it's just coincidental, but I've also been reading the Edna O'Brien trilogy. The trilogy is known as The Country Girls. I've read the first one, which is called The Country Girls, and then there's The Girl with the Green Eyes and The Girls in Their Married Bliss. And Edna O'Brien has recently released another book, which is just called Girl, which is also on point today. And that's been long listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction. Oh, okay. For 2020. Uh, She is a a much awarded writer, Edna O'Brien. She's Irish. I think she's actually Dame Edna O'Brien. I'm really looking forward to reading the second one in the series and I'm going to work my way through all three and then I might head on to the, the her most recent release because these were written in the 60s. I was going to say, it's spanned over so many years. It's, it's quite extraordinary. What a long career she's had. Yes, and to still and she's won so many awards over the years and to still be being nominated for the Women's Prize for Fiction 30 years later is a fabulous achievement. And interesting that she's returning to the girls' series. Yes. She writes a lot about ordinary women being thrust into extraordinary or even dangerous 
circumstances. Mm. And the first one, these girls are not as young as the girls in the book that we, the books that we've covered. These are girls that are more sort of blossoming into, they're sort of young adults, but in terms of their maturity, they are young girls from a poor Irish village. They really don't know anything, so it's delightful. I read Country Girls years ago, but I haven't revisited any of her books, so that might be time to do that. Yeah. So what else have you been diving into, Lou? Well, I just thought because we've been talking about books with stories of young girls, I wanted to mention a book I've read recently. It's a book from much younger age group, maybe from eight or nine upwards, and it's Goldfield's Girl, and it's by Australian author Elaine Forrestal and published by Fremantle Press. And Elaine Forrestal has written a lot of children's books. She'll be well known to Australian readers of children's books. And Goldfield's Girl is a fictional story of a remarkable 14-year-old girl, Clara Saunders. She was a real person. And this is a fictional account which is based on an unfinished manuscript which Clara wrote herself and which was found after her death in 1956. So fascinating. Yeah. So Clara travelled on a steamer ship with her mother and one of her sisters in 1892 and they were travelling from Queensland south down around Australia under the entire southern border of Australia, which we know as the Great Australian Bight, and up the west coast to the port of Fremantle. And and that's where we meet Clara. She's disembarking in Fremantle. But Fremantle is not their destination. They're going east to join two of Clara's older sisters who've already made their way to an inland town of Southern Cross where there's been a succession of gold discoveries And as we know, this was the period of gold fever and population explosion. And look, Southern Cross is, what, four hours east in a car these days. But in 1892, it took Clara and her mother and sister several days by coach. And can you imagine how dry and hot and barren it would have been for them? It would have just been hideous, wouldn't it? Baking heat with nothing to break the journey probably quite scary. Yeah, I think so. And she's a pretty resourceful girl. One of her sisters and her husband own a pub or a hotel and she's put to work and she meets a young man with whom she has a a very nice friendship and his family are water carters and they value water as a commodity as precious or more precious than gold, which I thought was an interesting part of the book. And of course, it was in very short supply water. And then when there's a significant gold discovery further east, she takes the adventurous step of accepting employment away from her family as a housekeeper at a new hotel. And that was in the new settlement of Coolgardi. And of course, us here in Western Australia, we know from history that that became the start of the greatest gold rush in West Australian history. I won't give away any more of the story. She faces a number of challenges, as you would expect. She's one of few females in the area and she has to learn to stand up for herself. I think this would be a really good gift for a young reader, maybe middle school or lower middle school. It's got lots of interesting themes. I hope it's actually taken up as a text by schools. Yeah, great way to learn a bit about the history. Exactly, and, you know, the harshness of the environment as well. Um, So, yeah, that's Goldfield's Girl by Elaine Forrestal, Fremantle Press. What about you? What have you been diving into? I've been diving into a couple of things. One is I've been working my way through every episode of the 
books podcast called Novel Pairings. Oh, yes. Great. And I am really loving it. I, I love Sarah and Chelsea's voices and they've got this lovely music. And then the, I think the concept of their podcast is so clever. They take a classic like Emma by Jane Austen, talk about that for a little while, and then they back and forth recommend and talk about other more modern mm. books that have similar themes or a similar feel or a similar character that people might enjoy. And because they're both English lit teachers, they've got an incredibly broad knowledge of books. And I just, I think it's such a clever way of looking at some of the classic texts. And the references that you find in current books. Yeah. So I've been loving that. So that's a Mm. podcast I'm just, so every time I go and do one of my big walks, I'm sort of doing one every day, I just put on the latest novel pair or I'm sort of working my way back from the beginning and I'm nearly at the end now but hopefully they'll keep producing them so I don't run out because I'm loving it and the other thing I've recently watched is a movie on Netflix called The Land of Steady Habits I just sort of stumbled on it it's not an upbeat movie at all it's about two very dysfunctional families but it's got really good actors in it which is what the appeal was for me. So Ben Mendelsohn is the oh, yes. main character. And mm. I have just loved him ever since the year my voice broke mm. and the big steel and all those early films that he was in when he was young. I think he's eminently watchable. He's great. And Connie Britton is in it. Oh, I love her. Yep, from Dirty John and, you know, three million other fabulous things. And Edie Falco from The Sopranos. Oh. And lots of other faces that you'll recognise. It's a really good cast. And Ben Mendelsohn plays a recently divorced man and he's lost his way. And both of the families that that form the, the central story have elder teenage sons that have severe addiction problems, one mm. alcohol, one drugs. So there is a bit of drugs use by some of the characters at some point. So if you don't like that, you won't like this film possibly, but it's not a major part of the story. But the acting and the cinematography are really good and it ends on a very positive note. It had a feel for me of that old movie, Ordinary People. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, that was, I think, had Mary Tyler Moore. It it, it sort of had a sad event had happened and everyone's dealing with the fallout in their own way. And this has got shades of that, I would say. So that's The Land of Steady Habits on Netflix. And I loved it. thought it was great. Excellent. I love Ben Mendelsohn. His Mm. career seems to be taking off in America. Mm. He's just starred in the television series, which is an adaptation of Stephen King's novel, The Outsider. Yes. Which is pretty torrid. I've watched it, but fabulous. But um, um, he's great in that. He just seems to uh, be being noticed a little bit more, which is great. Yes, it's nice to see an Australian actor doing so well. And Mm. he's got a, a very strong American accent in this, but... Yeah, he's really good in it. He's very convincing. So, yeah, I I really enjoyed that one. Excellent. So that's it for us on Books About Girls. We hope life is going okay for you at this very tricky time. We'd love you to follow us on Instagram at diving underscore in underscore podcast. Um, We post lots of pictures of the books that we've talked about and we'd really love you to tell a friend about our podcast. We will be back 
soon for another bookish conversation. We will. Bye for now. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in, breaking up, shaping up.